From and the, the title of was Ministry of Worship. Yeah, it's Ministry and something and and worship. Ministry, probably Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Worship, which sounds like it's uh, Harry Potter. They're ministry. pretty. I mean, they're a pretty religious country, South America in general. But you know, it's Catholica no practicante. It's like yeah. Catholic but not practicing, like every Jewish person in the U.S. But is it? Uh, but this is a ministry. I mean, it's a public body. Yeah. So why why would they? What kind of worship would they be doing or in charge of? <laughs> worship taxes. I think it's in. You're the Spanish speaker, but I think it's culto in Spanish. That's the. So maybe it's just a not not the optimal translation. The ministry, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like office of. No office of culto. So. Oh, office of culto. Relaciones uh, exteriores y culto. Arriba. <laughs> You did great, Joel. Yes. <laughs> that was really Take good. that box. <laughs> Welcome back to the Arbitration Station, episode 10. Oh, finally. Yeah. Double digit. You tried to make it into double digits at episode six, three or six. <laughs> <laughs> we made it, so I proved you wrong. So nice. Uh, I am Joel Dolkis Kolboy. And I am Brian Kotick. And today we will talk about the procedural language in arbitration. El lenguaje. <laughs> La langue. That's right. Jesus. We should do this in so many languages. We should. And we will also talk about... We will talk about international human rights and how it intersects with arbitration, international arbitration. So we're going to go in. It's a huge topic. We're just going to try and bite off a little bit, get the discussion groups going. Uh, but we'll be delving into it in later episodes, you know, more detail. Yeah, exactly. So listeners can split into small groups and seminar rooms and talk of among themselves, and then we'll come back in a few weeks. Yeah, definitely. And for Happy Fun Time, have we even got a name for this? Online etiquette slash habits slash strategies. Yeah, just your online presence That's and how to main, and how to manicure quicker. it. Because some people get you know some people get online and act a little crazy. <laughs> uh, but it's also you know how you. Uh, react online, how you include people in your network, how to find resources online, yeah, and how to make your online... Because right now, and you know this just from the Twitter sphere, is that your online presence is an extension of who you are. Very much so. And it needs to be a representative of who you are because that's maybe the only access people have to information about you. Yeah, indeed. Should we just get with it or... Launch into it. Yeah. Okay, let's go. So, parties, tribunals, and clients in international arbitration come from different countries, and therefore, generally, they speak different languages. So, the language, the procedural language is important. I think this is sort of like the cost thing that we talked about a few episodes back, that it's a seemingly minor, minuscule issue, but it has practical ramifications. So, I thought we should address this, um, because in nine out of ten cases... Language is a non-issue, of course. It doesn't really come up. But in the 10th case, uh, so every now and then, the procedural language is very much an issue. Normally, even if the parties have not agreed expressly to procedural language, 
which once again in commercial arbitration if you can you should specify yep. the procedural language in the arbitral clause but if you don't it's a non-issue simply because you can normally figure out anyway based on the contract or the submissions or the communications between counsel so it's not a big deal but it happens that it is because it may be different languages involved yes and um well, I should say this, uh, what brought my attention to this right now is a recently published jurisdictional decision, an ICSID case against the Ivory Post. I should also say that I haven't read the actual decision. I've only read the report of the decision. So this is uh, the cardinal sin that many lawyers are afraid of, talking about a decision <laughs> that you haven't read yourself. But in the report of the decision, it was reported, so I'm clearly pointing out that it's not, I haven't read it myself. There you go. Yeah, good. That the uh, the claimant, the investor, wanted French to be the procedural language. And the respondent state, the Ivory Coast, where French is the official language. Côte d'Ivoire. Exactly, very good. Wanted English to be the language of the proceedings. And this was an initial issue. But the tribunal was already in place, I think, when, when this was discussed. Okay. So that's not... Atypical, it happens. But what what caught my eye was the fact that the tribunal did not decide this by way of a recent decision, which is what I would assume, but by flipping coin toss. A literal coin. Yeah, exactly. One coin. Like heads, tails. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> English, French, and then presumably the chairman flipped a coin and it, it turned out to be French. What? It's so strange. <laughs> It's like, the, I don't know, it reminds me of Hunger Games. It's just like, let's leave this to the toss. <laughs> and it also raises the very, the Voldemort question in international arbitration, which, which is this. Why don't we just solve everything by way of coin toss then? Let's do it. Let's just get rid of all the complicated procedure. We have parties plead their case and then we decide by way of coin toss. The only cost you're going to have to fight over is who provides the penny. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Because it's the same logic, really. I mean, of course, the procedural language is a minor thing compared to the whole merits of the case. But still, if you just if you pay people to toss a coin for you rather than make a recent decision, what's the point? That, I was literally just thinking that. How do you go to your client and be like, so, about this case that you're investing <laughs> millions of dollars in, we're going to now enter the room and watch three old white men flip a coin? <laughs> Well, there might be more to this because I haven't read the decision. So maybe we'll put a pin in this and get back to it once the decision has I don't, been. I don't think there could be much more to a coin toss. <laughs> that's I mean, the point. Maybe both parties <laughs> thought this was like, it's not important. So let's just do this so we don't have to argue. I don't know. It could be if, if it doesn't really matter. We would prefer English. We would prefer French. But both parties are fine either way. And they don't want to spend time and money right. cheating on the point. So maybe that was just like, okay, let's just flip a coin and move on. Maybe. Wow. I don't know. But in exit cases, like this one with the Ivory Coast, there are three official languages, English, French, and Spanish, that the parties are free to use in the arbitration. And I think it, you can also use other languages if the exit secretary general approves it. So the parties cannot just by themselves have an exit case in Russian. They have to go to the exit secretary general because they have three official languages in which there are the exit convention is available in official versions and so on. And they probably don't have legal counsel that can 
Probably not. Help administer those yeah. cases. I mean, they may anyway because they have such an international right. staff, but not on a regular basis. I, I did a quick search on the exit webpage, and the only case with another language so far, it seems, is one in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, all other cases are in English, French, or Spanish. And I don't really know, It's as, as we have already talked about many times in different contexts, it's hard to know when it comes to commercial arbitration what is the global picture in terms of which languages are being used because many are not published. I think it's just a bit more flexible. It's usually in the arbitration clause, and then people will look to the language of the contract. Then you'll look at, like you said, the parties, even counsel. You know, sometimes if... You know, if you have Swedish parties, for example, and then you have Swedish council, then everyone's like, okay, let's, I mean, yeah. no one needs yeah, to translate anything. It makes sense for us, too. Yeah. So it's a bit more flexible, I think. Yeah, of course, that's that's true. And I, I still I guess that English is, of course, by far mostly you know, used more than any other languages. Or if you go back to episode three, <laughs> <laughs> English is nowhere to be found on the map. <laughs> but yeah, sure. And then French and Spanish, probably. But I've also seen, or I, I've had the un- unfortunate pleasure to to be forced to read words in, in Russian that I don't understand and have someone else help me translate. And that has happened a few times, partly because I'm in Stockholm and doing treaty-based research. But I know there are a significant number of Russian awards out there, or awards in the Russian language, rather. And then I think Portuguese, and I've seen one in Arabic that I was like, what to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you were, you read the Russian ones? You can read Russian? No. Oh, oh. No, no. But I, yeah, no, I can read the alphabet, so I, I can spell out the words phonetically, but that doesn't okay. really get me all the <laughs> That's way. That's like me in Hebrew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have it on my resume. R- reasonable skits, no, I don't. <laughs> can read the letters in this language. <laughs> Such a CV boost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but um, in practice, what does the choice of procedural language really entail? You're the, you're the practical one in this group. <laughs> does everything that is put before the tribunal have to be translated into the procedural language? Um, the answer is yes, officially. Yeah. Um, the benefit of putting it into the language that the arbitrators can know is that everyone's kind of on the same page of what the material is and you don't just get a financial expert summarizing all these documents that you can't read yourself. Um, So you're kind of functioning off a summary, so you're a bit handicapped in that way. Yeah. So everything is translated, yes. Okay, even if it's like super burdensome and maybe not relevant, because I'm guessing it's Well, that's when the summary summary comes in. Mm. So if it is extremely burdensome to but you can't rely on anything that is not in the in the procedural language of the arbitration okay so then it really has a a big practical implication yeah even though everyone's speaking a language that everyone understands you have to understand that the subject matter of the case can take place in you know ukraine and then all those documents will be in ukrainian and then they have to be translated yeah so it's it comes into play not just in talking across the table, it comes into play on how the arbitration is going to be conducted with evidence. Yeah, that's interesting. And another related thing in, in treaty-based arbitrations is that the the treaty in question is normally available in different languages. Right. And some of them, or hopefully just one, but sometimes several versions are the official versions of that, that treaty. So you would have to interpret the treaty using several different language versions that may be different from the procedural language. And I guess it's 
the same in the, in the commercial context that you have so much stuff that is crucial, like contract or evidence that is not in the procedural language. Right. Definitely. So you uh, pay a lot of money to have translators and interpreters, basically. So usually if you have a very sophisticated client, they will have in-house counsel who can do the translation for you. So it can all be in-house translation because if you're getting all that officially translated, it's going to take so much time and so much money. but And then the benefit of having it in-house translated is that they know the subject matter. They don't have to do any research. You don't have to, like, correct their terminology or anything like that because it's already – they know the facts of the case. If it's not as sophisticated of a client, then you can do it in-house in your law firm if you have someone who speaks the language. So that's, like, the second level. And then you can officially translate something. Some things you really want to have officially translated, like a judgment yeah, or something that a you... treaty. Yeah, a treaty that you just don't want to have any sort of... Because the second you translate something in-house, you know the opposing counsel is just going to raise a bunch of flags. Yeah, and the evidentiary value... I would assume is a little bit lower than if it's an official one stamped by a person. If it's contested, yes. Yeah, exactly. Are you going to talk about interpreters? No, I was going to ask you because I am not that that much in hearings. So strategically, you see the hindrance of having a translator in the booth. So, you know, they sometimes do real-time translation, which I think is the coolest thing ever yeah that they're sitting in a booth and they have a lot of materials from the hearing so that they can like follow along in your presentations and kind of like use the terminology but if you're doing cross-examination and you're on a hot trail and you have to wait every five seconds to get it translated it's it's totally takes the wind out of your sails Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and then and we've had because they can only work for about 30 minutes. Yeah, and there has to be at least two of them yeah. switching Who back and switch. forth. And if you get a bad one, ooh, I've seen the difference. Really? Yeah, I can imagine that you can tell the difference if you have one just coming straight after the other one. Yeah. But within the same Who's like, pleading, yeah. And then and you only only if it's really bad can you like I mean you can raise your hand and stop at any time, but you can be like cuz people are listening at, in real time and they're like, "Oh, can we wait cuz the the translator translation hasn't caught up." So you have, if you think about all the re- ways that things can get lost in translation, because you have people talking, then you have the translator translating, and sometimes if you know the language, like I've heard things translated, I'm like, you missed like, <laughs> something. Yeah, yeah, you've had that. Or experience. you'll hear like it's like a bad anime movie where it's like da 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 da, it's like hello, you know, <laughs> and then you're like something was lost there, yeah. and then that the person writing the transcript of the hearing is based off of what the interpreters are saying. They may not catch everything, and then you're and then you're going to correct the transcripts later on. I mean, it could be a whole mess. It's got to be a specific skill as, uh, as an oral advocate to be able to, to make your case in the tempo that yes. is still convincing and like good advocacy, but while you know maintaining the understanding of the interpreter so that they don't definitely slip. And to kind of and that this is where the importance of knowing a second language comes into play because if you I know people who knew both of the languages and they have it in their ear while they're doing cross examination and then they'll stop things and be like, No, that's that wasn't translated correctly. Or, you know, to that really Superman be, stuff to be able is, to do that. <laughs> it's extremely impressive, but the importance of it is really bad. And then once you get the transcript then you have corrections of transcripts, which is another stage of the proceeding that you can include. And then not only are you correcting the English, but you're also correcting the second language one. Mm. 
and then there's and then how do they go together? I mean, it's it can be a real real. Because it, it it potentially it could have very big consequences. Oh yeah, you can win. You can get real good evidence in that you yeah, weren't able to yeah. get because of translation mistakes. This this sort of relates to a thing that I was also interested in because it, once again it's something that popped up in my own research in in set asides because then it's a it's a whole different ball game right because normally you have the set aside proceeding if it's not an exit case uh, because then the exit annulment committee normally uses the language from the tribunal so it's the same if it's a, if, if it's in French then the annulment proceedings will be in French. But in uh, in the set aside in the commercial or non exit context, you go to a national court, which of course typically has its own language right. and judges who may not necessarily be super fluent in English, and then everything has to be translated. Oh typically. wow! But I mean, this is I know for a fact that in Sweden and in Switzerland, uh, it's already established practice, and it has in both jurisdictions. It's been suggested that it's made into law as well, that parties may plead and do everything in English, basically. Um, everything, but the, the court still issues decisions and awards or, in, or in judgments in, in their own language. Right. But uh, that's probably going to be codified now. But apart from those two examples, it, you have to, well, basically you have to retain local counsel for the set-aside proceedings, even if you are relatively fluent in the applicable law. You may know it's a model law jurisdiction. You know more or less exactly what you're going to argue. You could, in theory, maybe as an international lawyer working in another jurisdiction, you could arguably make that case yourself, but you can't because, you know, the case is seated in The Hague, so mm -hmm. it needs to be argued in Dutch. Right. And you therefore need Dutch local counsel. Which I think is a way, and this may be interesting when we do the seat of arbitration series, uh, to talk about who will allow people to do it in in an international language. Yeah, because I mean, there's I think it's a, there's a tendency in the in the arbitration world, the pro arbitration uh, refrain to to assume that it's of course good to do it in English if we can, because that's normally the language that arbitrations are conducted in. But I don't think we should overestimate how good domestic judges are. <laughs> to start with in English. So there might be a point in having things translated. And I think also speaking more as a, as a general lawyer, we should all have an interest in the other languages developing, both culturally and legally. It's good for, for the Netherlands, to stick with this example, to have awards and judgments written and argued in, in, in Dutch because we don't want English to be the only language used right. in commercial context. Altes goed. What? That's uh, is everything good in Dutch? Jesus, that's such a complicated language. <laughs> it's really complicated. It's like Finnish. Yeah, but the thing with Dutch is that it's such a gap between the written and the spoken word. Like, yeah, I, it's similar to Swedish and German, so I can read it. But as soon as someone opens their mouth, I'm like, okay, I'm just checking out of the conversation. <laughs> what do you know? Why some exit awards have English and Spanish awards? Yeah, because they have two procedural languages. Okay, so that that's something to say that there is a possibility to have two. Yeah, procedural that's languages. that's a good point. But then you almost all. I mean, then it goes back to what you were saying. Then you run into the problems of translations and which one yeah. has the supreme authority if there's a divergence between the two versions. And I think it opens up for more uh, disputes within the dispute, really. Which is always good for the contract drafters out there to specify which language will be. Yeah, which will prevail if there's exactly. something that's unclear. Um, well, yeah. 
I was going to say that there's also we sh- must keep in mind that the reason I think that in, in the set aside context that we have this one of the reasons maybe more hush hush and less so than the need for cultural development is of course that it's a good market for local council. You have a lot of very good lawyers who make a good living arguing primarily set aside cases in their home jurisdiction. Right. Because if you want to go to Geneva or the Hague or Paris or Stockholm or whatever to set aside, you need to retain local council. And they have a monopoly, basically. They have the market cornered, which might be a problem then if we formally introduce English as the procedural language also in non-English speaking courts. You're taking cases out of the hands of the Basically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, the serious, sophisticated client with a big international firm would still want to have local counsel, of course, because they know the law, they know the court, and so on, even if the the local language goes away as a, as a, as leverage, they still have a unique position to argue the case, I think, probably. Then we shouldn't go all the way into this, but it's also interesting when you, many states you have different official languages. I mean, Switzerland has four languages, right. so the Swiss Federal Tribunal works in four languages, which is really weird, and it's not always super clear which language the set-aside will be in. Then they can't. Even, they need to dice at that point because they can't flip a coin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like it Dungeons and Dragons. But I think it's. Uh, I read an investment treaty challenge in before the Swiss Federal Tribunal because it's only one court in Switzerland where they have the exclusive jurisdiction for international awards right. challenges, and they, if if the arbitration has been argued in one of the four official languages, the court will use that language, but if it's not, i.e., if it's in English, the court will do or choose language depending on the submissions right. or the party agreement, basically. So if, if the party applying for, for set-aside does so in French, the court will assume that French is now the official language, but it might as well have been German or Italian. You're like a Jolopedia. <laughs> you have so many fun facts. Yeah, this is, but this is my dissertation topic. Oh. As, soon as, as soon as I leave like a, the set-aside... <laughs> Right, right, right. I'm lost. (laughs) And speaking of that, let's move on to something where I'm lost and you're not. Hi, this is Joel again. After we recorded the coin toss episode, but before we published it, the partial award in the Cointos case was made available, and so I read it since I'm a diligent lawyer, and two things should be pointed out. First, it does not seem like it was the procedural language that was decided by the Cointos, uh, even though that might have been the impression given by us in our misinformed discussion. Rather, it was the language for the first session that was decided by the Cointos. And then it seems that both English and French were used for the remainder of the proceedings. For example, the decision, the jurisdictional decision, and the dissenting opinion are in English, at least those versions published by IA Reporter. And secondly, the actual coin toss appears to have been made by the tribunal secretary. And since this is an ICSID case, uh, the secretary here is an ICSID case manager. She flipped the coin through telephone conference with the parties and it was recorded both by video and audio and that recording was then sent to the parties and to the tribunal the same day. 
So we can add the occasional coin flipping to potential secretary tasks that we discussed in the inaugural episode. Welcome back to part two of this episode, episode 10, Landmark Double Digits, to talk about human rights and international arbitration, the two ships sailing in the night and why should they meet. So basically, I mean, if we talk about human rights, what are some examples of human rights that you can think of? You can think about labor laws and torture and detainment, or you can also talk about liberties as well. Um, You can talk about the right to water, for example, the right to own property, uh, some basic, whether you think that is a human right can depend on which jurisdiction you're in. Yeah, of course. You guys have the Bill of Rights. We have the European Convention on Human Rights, and there might be other rights in other parts of the world. The right to bear arms. That's right. It's a very important human right. <laughs> the arbitration on gun laws. No, but um, so if we talk about something, for example, like the right to water, you have the right to clean and sanitary water. And there's actually a, a European convention or a general assembly convention that put the right to access to clean and sanitary water as a basic human right. And so w- how would you violate that human right? You can violate that in many different ways. You could have a state that is polluting its water. You could have a corporation that's polluting its water. Um, And so a court or an arbitration could order measures to free water sources from contamination. There could also be state-to-state disputes over boundaries that include a water source. Um, So that could be a, um, a way to have water or the right to water as a subject matter of a claim. You have constructing hydroelectric uh, dams. You have the privatization of water sources. You have forced displacement of people who had access to water or the commodification of water. So, this, I mean, there's a lot of ways that this has come up, and it has come up a couple of times in ISDS. For example, the Bayview v. Mexico case, um, which is a case that was under the... NAFTA. Under NAFTA, exactly, between... Um, and the nationality, so it was Mexico, but then you had um, Texan water users um, and irrigation districts. Um, so it had to do, the details of the investment in that case where there were water rights under a 1944 U.S.-Mexico water treaty held by 46 American claimants, including 17 irrigation districts, trusts, partnerships, and estates. And the claims were arising out of Mexico's alleged capture, seizure, and diversion of more irrigation water of the Rio Grande River than, or Grande, uh, than to than that to which the country had right to under the U.S.-Mexico Treaty to the benefit and the use of Mexican farmers. So you have kind of this: Do these American investors have a human right, or a human right to water? Now. We can go into, and this is a conversation for you know another day, whether ISDS is capable or suited to capture the nuances and to redress the issues faced by these human rights violations. Um, and some people, and especially now, are saying that um, business and human rights, this intersection is not, it's not enough, it's insufficient to redress these issues. And so what... Um, they have done, for example, they've created this new 
arbitration mechanism that would be based on the UN principles on business and human rights. They're called the guiding principles on business and human rights. And there's three pillars to these principles. The first pillar is that there's a state's duty to protect international human rights. The second one is that there's a business, the business enterprises have a duty to protect international human rights. And then the third pillar, which is where the arbitration aspect comes from, is that there needs to be effective access to remedies for victims of violations of human rights, both judicial and non-judicial. So this, and it's BHR, is it called, Business and Human Rights. This type of arbitration, the promoters of this type of arbitration have said that ISDS is not suited for human rights because the BHR, Business and Human Rights, does not seek to curtail the regulatory role of states. Um, It's more about corporate responsibility and not about the profit for these investors. And victims, actual victims of human rights violations, have access to dispute resolution, not just companies. Um, It's more transparent and there's better suited arbitrators. And we're going to get into this Mm. because there's more, you know, these arbitrators that are corporate law arbitrators may not have the competence to decide on issues of um, international human rights. It's interesting how ISDS is, uh, I mean, compared to other fields of international law, ISDS has so much teeth. It, it's, right. a, it's a system through which you can very effectively enforce rights under international law, but it does not exist in any other field of international law. It, it, it's not just human rights. I know there's a big discussion going on with um, environment exactly. uh, as well, that people are starting to look at ISDS, not you know trying to incorporate and copy, but rather see if we can figure out ways in other spheres of international law in which we could incorporate similar elements and get enforceable uh, substantive rights, not just uh, substantive rights and you know lofty language uh, undertaking X, Y, and Z, but with exactly. no procedural mechanism, which is typically the standard in many fields of international law. And that's when I started first looking into this, it seemed like almost a pie in the sky, which is what we call, you know, just a very highly conceptual idea of how we can resolve these issues. But maybe, like you said, that they wouldn't even be enforceable. So why are we even discussing it? Yeah. Uh, So it is a very, very, very relevant um, consideration to take into account. Um, And then so not only do you have ISDS as a way to do this, but you have domestic courts that can hear violations of international human rights and the people supporting these um, this international human rights arbitration mechanism say that domestic courts are maybe inadequate to address human rights abuses by multinational corporations as well. And if even if you put reforms into place to make these domestic courts more suitable to adhere these issues, like, for example, make a specialized tribunal within the domestic court system, that's going to take years to get into place and even more years to create adequate precedent to, you know, develop institutional memory. So this is kind of maybe something that can be done in the interim. Um, And so then how is this all going to work, right? Um, So you have, how, how can you have parties enter into contracts that have this agreement to refer disputes on international human rights to this international human rights tribunal? Um, and the, basically what the Working Group on International Arbitration and Business Human Rights said is that they will have it between corporations. So when you enter into a contract, a business contract, it'll be one of the clauses. It could be a subset of the arbitration clause or it could be its own clause that says any viol- we uphold the international standard of human rights. Any violation of that will be referred to the 
you know, this arbitration center. Um, but it would still have to be like each and every contract. The consent would be between two parties in a contract. So no type of you know, general jurisdiction or, I don't know, the, a business sector wide thing. No, exactly. Okay. It would be between two parties. And then you would basically have to tell the party that you're doing business with to go down their supply chain and mm. also sign contracts. Because what's going to happen, we have a contract, but your sub-supplier is over in Thailand just killing people. Yeah. And the only agreement to, and that's really one of the weaknesses I would say about this, is that it's all based on party agreement because there's no other way to bring anyone to the table. They, they have no you know, strong arm force to bring people to the table. Um, and so it's a way, to, but also what they can do is include in that clause a possibility that victims of international human rights abuses can also bring claims or they can join pre-existing claims between the two corporations. So that basically gives them standing to bring these claims. And then the penalty or the damages that you can seek would not be criminal. They would be civil damages. So you would get money or you can get injunctions. And then the question is, where does that money go? It does go to the victims. But if it's another corporation or if it's state to state, who gets that money? Um, if it's an NGO that's bringing on behalf... <laughs> Shaking my head. This is I hadn't realized how complicated this is. Yeah. Or, or and will be. So it's not as easy as I think uh, people, you know, people are discussing this now, but there's so much to really nail down in order for it to be extremely effective. Um, and of course, when, you know, a dispute can arise and then people can agree to it afterwards that they can refer to arbitration, like you can do a normal commercial arbitration. But you, again, it's really functioning off this party agreement, which I'm not sure how easy it will be. Um, they talked about what the seat would be for such an arbitral tribunal, which we have talked about is very re relevant. And that would just be flexible, depending on what the parties agree to. Hmm. Again, party agreement, are they really going to do it? And then enforceable. So you, if you had a domestic award or you know arbitral award from the seat, then that would be um, enforceable based off the state's arbitration act. If it was a foreign one, it would be under the New York Convention. But are those enforceable under those um, legislative instruments? We don't know. And then the rules. What rules are going to use? Yeah, exactly. And things like transparency would enter into that discussion, I guess, because this is something that we typically want to have in courts because there are so you know they're so close to the exactly to the sovereign interests and and to the public interests. So they said that the UNCTRAL rules could be the starting point, but they would need serious revisions. Yeah. And one of the main things was transparency that they said would be uh, needed to be revised or included more strong transparency provisions. Uh, some other ones they were saying was to accommodate multiple victims, which may not be under the UNCTRAL rules, uh, to protect victims against retaliation from states or, co or corporations to include a section on what types of arbitrators can be appointed, that they have to be experienced in business and human rights, um, and then you that you could include business and human rights issues with non-business and human rights issues, and then the potential for mediation. And then who's going to decide these issues? Yeah, um, Is it going to be people from NGOs, or is it just going to be normal arbitrators? So they have something called a special roster, which they use now in the PCA, which you touched upon because they do it for, they have arbitrators that are specifically knowledgeable on environmental issues. Um, so they were thinking maybe we can mod model it kind of how the PCA is doing it. Right. Um, and then, or you can have human rights activists, but talk about, you know, finding impartiality in this would be um, 
would be difficult. Who would, I mean, what would be the forum in which this is being discussed? Would it be in like an uncentral setting or do we have to figure out a new type of body in which this can be discussed? I mean, some could say that it would be part of the PCA. Yeah. But have it be the human rights aspect using uncentral rules. I mean, I'm thinking on a meta level, like uh-huh. how, how do we get from where we are now to having something in place, which, which is the body tasked with drawing up all of this? The parties. Oh, oh, the rules, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so they have a working group on... Under which institution or uh, I'm not organization? Sure. I'm not sure. Some UN something, I think you said. Yes, yes. Because it is based off the UN guiding principles, yeah. so I assume it's the UN. What do you think? Do you think that's the appropriate mechanism? Or the, the appropriate group to take this on? I mean, I, I was just thinking because of the uh, ongoing reform work in UNCITRAL with the uh, potential future multilateral investment court to replace ISDS, basically, that the forum in which the discussion is taking place typically also, you know, it risks having an effect of the outcome, of course, who is being represented and in which ways and how do you get state input, how do you get input from commercial players and do you need, you know, X amount of states to sign up or is it going to be in some sort of treaty to get maximum backup or is it just going to be soft law instruments and then we say it's up to the parties to incorporate. The way in which you do it is important, I think. Definitely. I, so I was talking to uh, my brother who worked for a Fortune 100 company in the U.S. who did a lot of, you know, there were multinational enterprise. So I kind of picked his brain. I was like, what would you do if, you know, someone presented you with? Because a, a lot of firms now have a compliance department, and I would kind of put that under that umbrella. So if you're advising your client on potential issues that could be raised in starting businesses abroad or whatever, that not only would be like financial regulation compliance, but it would also be international human rights compliance. And if you're advising them on what to do, so I asked him, is like if someone asked you to include that into your contract as a director of a Fortune 100 company, do you think they would be open to it? And he said they do that already. So um, he worked he worked worked past tense for Nestle, um, and they were getting tuna for the, their cat food in Thailand, and there was a lot of problems with the labor laws in Thailand, also their fishing laws as far as like environmental protection, um, and so they kind of had to put the burden on the Thai government. Nestle did because they're like, okay, we have like 10% of your GDP coming in just to get this fish. We need you to uh, raise your level of your international human rights and environmental protection standards so that we can continue to do business with you. Um, And they ended up changing their labor laws to do that um, because there was just money involved. Mm, So I think that would be the case. But the foresight of two business parties coming together and you have one one person who's a great contractor another person who's a great contractor but is requiring you to sign all these human rights things and say if we find someone in a far-off country who you hurt their feelings I'm not, not diminishing human rights but if you are torturing them or you know making them work 23 out and a half hours a day that they can bring you to court and I'll, I'm a huge proponent of international human rights but you think about a corporation and a bottom line and whether they're really going to be interested in spearheading this initiative, being the first one in the market yeah. to yeah, put it in their it contract. Yeah, costs and risks. Lots of costs. I was, as you know, I was initially a little bit hesitant to take on this subject because it's so big and complicated and neither of us really knows anything about it. But no. I think this, we, we need to bring some people on 
in the future to talk about this because there are so many, not necessarily arbitration specialists, but very good people and very good lawyers working on this. And, and uh, Yeah. The reason why I wanted to bring it up is because we did that when we did the pop culture podcast and I figured there were so many other types of arbitration going on there except for the linear, you know, what what we think or what we work with in arbitration that I was, you know, there's other ways that arbitration can be effective. True, true. Uh, and so I saw this as kind of like I saw the, you know, international human rights arbitration mechanism as kind of one of just another mechanism that is being developed that it would be great to keep an eye out for and see how it Yeah, and there's also, we should mention that there's something called the Stockholm Treaty Lab, which the SEC is partly involved in, which is, they've asked, I think it's, maybe it's closed now, the competition, but it's, so it's ongoing, but they've asked teams to come up with a future model treaties for investment, green investments, essentially, uh, that contain effective enforcement mechanisms. So, for example, the the Paris Agreement is is super crucial for the survival of our planet, but it, it doesn't really contain any. What Paris any... Agreement? I don't think we're a part of any Paris Agreement <laughs> as an American. You're almost Swedish. Well. <laughs> Just kidding. But it doesn't really contain any effective enforcement mechanisms. So, like, the the thinking behind that is: Are there any ways of connecting some kind of arbitration to uh, undertakings in the environmental field. So it's sort of similar to this human rights discussion as well. So it's it's an ongoing thing, I think, in several fields of people trying to figure out how to introduce more efficient mechanisms into the yeah. other fields than commercial law. It's like corruption. I feel like corruption was kind of the first societal ailment that has been remedied through including it into dispute resolution procedures. And quite effectively, and now compliance is very, very much considered by multinational enterprises. Mm. Going into, you know, not as clear-cut corruption, but kind of like bribes to get, con- you know, contracts done yeah. that is just to the course of doing business. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Consultancy fees. Exactly. Success fees. <laughs> uh, interesting, but we calling all listeners if you want to... Yeah, we'll be back. We'll be back on that subject, but please send us your thoughts and let's move on. Fun time. Happy fun time. Online presence, strategies. What, what was the catchy phrase? Online presence and strategies. Yeah, you got it. Okay. I thought it was even catchier before. Well, we'll see. Um, I thought I should start with uh, a, a normal day in Joel Dahlqvist Kullborg's life when I wake up and I flip open my computer. <laughs> I, I can't do. wait for this. <laughs> I do some other non-arbitration related things, like check the latest hockey scores and things like that. But my, in terms of arbitration, uh, you know, keeping an ear to the ground, every day I check, uh, I reporter, and full disclosure, I think I mentioned this, I used to work and I will probably do again right, right now. I'm on a hiatus because I have to finish my dissertation and do nothing else apart from a podcast. <laughs> IA Reporter, Global Arbitration Review. Those are the two main sources of uh, digital information that I have. But they cost money, both of them. Right. So I realized it's not always possible for everyone to do this. But most firms, I assume, subscribe to both, at least if you're yeah. working with... But Kluber Arbitration Blog is free. 
Yes, exactly. That's a free one. Yes, but I don't check that one every day. Because I also have, I have a, like an RSS thing that sorts uh, blogs and stuff for me. And then I have m- other secondary sources like the Kluver Arbitration blog. Because they, I mean, they have posts, I think, on a daily basis almost. Yeah, yeah. But they are so wide in their focus. GAR is, Global Arbitration Review is great because they have such a quick response rate and they also contain some gossipy things, which I say not in a condescending way, but in, you know, in a good way. Yeah. Who has been recruited by whom and who has moved there. And I like those good. too. Yeah, those are good. But you don't see those on IE Reporter, which is more substantive in its uh, approach and also, of course, exclusive to investment arbitration. So not always relevant if you're working primarily with commercial cases. Then I every day also check my Twitter and LinkedIn, which really, I think, opens the door for our primary discussion on how to behave (laughs) on Twitter and LinkedIn. But let me say this. Is this maybe the sole area in which I am more youthful and open-minded than you are? One thousand (laughs) percent. I knew it. Is it your firm pedigree that makes you so skeptical towards digital interaction? Uh, no, no. My age? I don't know. I find it very <laughs> same age. overwhelming. I find it overwhelming because I, I was talking to someone yesterday in preparation for this, like how the, how they use Twitter. And it's and people said it's a Twitter. People, my president is making legislation via Twitter. Twitter is a thing and you got to get with the program, I guess. And you said what in response? I don't want Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, you sound like my dad now. I've had this discussion with my dad, but it's sort of different because I think the the practical use for you is so much more obvious than it is for my dad, who's a car mechanic in his 60s. So he doesn't really need Twitter. You're right. You, I, you... I had Twitter. Let me tell you, I had Twitter. And this was when I was in high school, so I was following like P. Diddy. I think back then he was Sean Puff Daddy or something. <laughs> And I was following him, and it was just like advertisement, 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 crossing. Like, I first of all, it's such a language as well. You know, the ats, the hashtags. The yeah, that's true. But it, it's not a very retweets. high bar of entrance, though. It's five minutes, and then you figure out. Okay, fine. But, you know, you would, go, you would like, look at it, and it's, it's almost like, because it's like retweeting this person who's adding someone else, talking bad about them yeah, and posting a picture. And so after that, I was like, okay, I... I Whereas like Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, you have more of like an organized, like every post is legible to the naked eye. I just found Twitter to be like completely confusing. But it has changed, I think. And I mentioned this a few episodes back that there are so many people on Twitter now, even in our field. And of course, the difference between that and many other for us is, is that you really have to curate your own feed basically you have to figure out who you're interested in and following and then actively make the step and follow that person and uh, so initially it's i see the what you're saying it's just a lot of ads right (laughs) but then as soon as you gather you know 50 plus people that you're interested in you have your own personal news feed every day basically if you have relevant enough I'm I'm a reformed person based off your activeness on Twitter and letting me know the kind of feedback we've received from this just on this podcast alone and kind of how people are sharing it and how people are really sharing information. Yeah, for me, the way I see this is that we, meaning the arbitration station, this arbitration station, not the IKEA <laughs> knockoff, <laughs> we're, we're part of something in the sense that our field is changing slower than the rest of the world, but nevertheless changing 
in the sense that so much more of the communication, the information in our field is communicated in in digital channels. So yeah. we have a podcast that w- probably wasn't really possible 10 years ago. You, you wouldn't see arbitration people uh, getting access to information through a podcast. And similarly, Twitter is in the same way. You know, it's, it's a more informal way of talking about things that may or may not be substantive, but still, you know, being part of a community. Right. So I think since you are hosting a podcast, it's your damn duty to also you know, go the whole nine yards. <laughs> nine. <and be. laughs> well, I mean, I just know because Joel will text me on Facebook Messenger sometimes be like, have you seen the new award that just came out? Or when the coin toss award came out, he was like right on me being like, you know, have you seen this? And that if, is basically Twitter, right? Yeah, primarily. You're like retweeting an article that you saw or, you know, posting like, hey, I just saw this award. Like it was very interesting. Yeah. Exactly. So basically, I would centralize all that communication if I just joined Twitter. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I think there's also, you know, the it, it all gets better the more of us there are. Calmer. Amen. Yeah, the more believers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the more believers. What about LinkedIn? I know you for a fact you have LinkedIn. I have LinkedIn, and I only post about the arbitration statement. <laughs> <laughs> that's like I, any crappy social media consultant could tell you that's not the way to use social media. Right. It's not. And I th- like a one-way I, street. I use LinkedIn a bit more. Um, but I think what's more interesting is to talk about LinkedIn etiquette. Yeah, I think we may differ on this. Right. So you're once again American and I'm Swedish. I I'm maybe I'm <laughs> taking things out and So you shake p- someone's hand at a conference, and the next day you receive a LinkedIn from that person, would you accept that LinkedIn? Of course. Would you be the person to send that LinkedIn? I have, in fact, been that person a few times. Oh, don't take the initiative. <laughs> <laughs> the way I view LinkedIn is as a replacement for business cards. Right. So I use the same etiquette I would with business cards, basically. That's a good rule of thumb. So if I, if I shake someone's hand and I don't have a business card with me, I... I might say I'll hook you up on LinkedIn like this is Joel (laughs) yeah but I mean (laughs) since I'm an academic this is a very practical problem it's pretty hard to get business cards working for a university my supervisor has to approve and then it gets sent out somewhere in rural Sweden to the printer has to do it and they do it wrong and it costs money and there are invoices to be paid and the dean has to you know it's very complicated. I just imagine like Thor Svensson just like putting it down like Hephaestus and like the Greek gods being like, we have to print <laughs> Swedish business cards. It's like cards. that. So I've been a few times I've been in the position that I haven't had business cards. And that doesn't happen to someone who works for a firm. You guys always have business cards, of course, because you have some minion somewhere whose sole job is to provide you with business cards. Her name is Sarah and she's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> so, yeah, if I'm in that position, LinkedIn is useful. Because then I get the business card of someone else and I have name and info and I just search for them on LinkedIn and I add them. But I usually do so with a note saying, you know, Here we go. Nice, okay. nice meeting you. Uh, please connect with me on LinkedIn. So there's a purpose to your, it's not just rapid fire LinkedIn. Yes. You get a LinkedIn. You get a LinkedIn. <laughs> but what about if you're speaking on a panel at a conference and you receive a LinkedIn notification that someone has added you who was probably at the conference, maybe didn't send you a message. Let's say they didn't send you a message. Would you accept that? Well, now you're putting me in a corner a little bit because I think I might be different than some other people in this respect. I, as a matter of principle, do not accept LinkedIn invitations from people I've never spoken to unless there's a message 
connected to the request saying like I saw you on the conference or you know do you remember we spoke four years ago blah 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 in those cases of course but any unsolicited link that would just be like I don't know going around collecting business cards <laughs> lying around <laughs> and not talking to the people who actually laying the on the floor <laughs> yeah exactly but I think and we talked about this before and I think you're exactly right is that when you use LinkedIn as a network resource you need to contact, have people in your network that you actually can network with and not just be like, oh, I yeah. added that person. I have no idea who yeah, they exactly. are. Yeah, exactly. Empty numbers, just shells with nothing in them. That, And this, I know since we started the podcast, actually, that's probably why we're talking about this now. I received so many requests on LinkedIn that have just been, I, I assume, from you know people who are much more uh, experienced and intelligent than I am, but I don't know who they are. And with no note explaining, I, I, I don't reject either because I'm too polite. I just leave them pending. because you're so famous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you've had the same experience, but you're so American, so you just accept. <laughs> right? <laughs> I was just so excited. I was so excited by the request. I was just like, bring it, everybody. No, but I think you're right. And I, I think if this is your first interaction with someone professionally is unfortunately, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, if this, we now have digital interactions being the first interaction, you need to make a good first impression and keep it professional. And by just like adding someone, I don't think people take it seriously. No, I don't think so either. But uh, on the other hand, it's so frequent that I, you know, I suspect that we may be wrong or other people have other ideas. Because in my world, it's so alien. I would never just add someone. I agree. What about, I'm asking you all these hypotheticals because I need to know for myself. What about um, emailing people that you've never met or? All the time. Okay. I do that all I the time. I think that's more acceptable. Yeah, it probably is. And then, I mean, as soon as you you actually communicate, I guess that's the bottom line. If you just request to connect, that's not the communication. Like passive. Yeah, right. exactly. But I do that um I think maybe I even overuse it, and there might be a few people out there in the podcastosphere that I've emailed <laughs> once or twice too too often. Because uh, both in my research and otherwise, I email people every day that I've never met. I have so many issues when I can't find uh, material online or in the library. Like, I need this article written by Practitioner X. It's nowhere to be found. Well, just email Practitioner X and say, hey, yeah. we've never met. This is my name. And I am working on this. I would like to use what I think is relevant to the article that you wrote. And you, you actually get have more. You'll, you'll get more benefit out of it as well I, if you're dire- creating a direct interaction and not just having like a passive inclusion yes. process. Because I know some very very senior practitioners who make it a point to answer every email that they get. Yeah. So you're going to get a response and develop a personal contact way faster and exactly. more effectively. And it is it's important to keep in mind I think this is a people business and that translates into the di- digital sphere as well that there's someone else on the other side of that interaction and that's just a person who if it's uh, a normal good human being is of course interested in communicating with fellow human beings. Exactly. So the the question is is open to, you know to send an email even if it's unsolicited and it m- may be a little bit unexpected. But uh, you know the worst that can happen is that you get no response. Do you have your CV on LinkedIn? Yeah. My CV is my LinkedIn basically. Right. But I think there's an option that you can like attach a PDF of your CV. Okay, no. No, I don't. I think that's a little too open. Yeah. You know, I 
I don't get any job offers. I mean, I'm not exactly hot on the market as a doctoral candidate. So. <laughs> well, that's, uh, yeah, that's another thing. There's recruiters all over LinkedIn as well that can contact you if you want. Yeah. It's good to find job. Job postings are on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, generally speaking, you, you almost, I think we could say this, you must have a LinkedIn profile that's reasonably updated. With a professional picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or isn't yours a cartoon? No, that's Twitter. Okay. Ah, yeah, to prove your point, I actually have a fancy From When I worked at the SEC, I have one with a suit and tie, and I even have a, my, I have my hair is pretty combed. <laughs> Look not at all like myself. <laughs> well, then, there you go. Get online. Yes, all of you, right this minute, get online. <laughs> and that's kind of why we're doing this podcast. It's just another online presence that you're developing for yourself. Yeah, I think this it, it connects to the the conferencing that we talked about previously. That the interaction with your community does not start and end at a conference. Definitely, you not. should keep in touch with people in between. I think as much as possible. Be engaged. Be an engaged member of the community. Speaking of, thanks for engaging with us for this hour. Yes, and keep doing so at uh, the Arb Station on Twitter and the arbitration station at gmail.com. And visit our website, www.thearbitrationstation.com. Great. And thank you, Jan Kunstu, for editing. We appreciate you. And Sarah, whoever you are. <laughs>